The CDC has issued guidance for what fully vaccinated people can safely do. And more Reinsdorfs want a stake in the White Sox, as a venture led by Jerry Reinsdorf's sons is looking to buy a share of the franchise. You've got Michael and Jonathan Reinsdorf perhaps signaling a long-term intention to own the Sox, even though Jerry has said publicly that he has strongly suggested that his family sell the team when he dies. Not to be melancholy, but that's what he has said. He said that in 2013. He's kind of echoed that since. Cranes reporter Danny Ecker joins the podcast with more. Now, on the other hand, when you buy a limited partner stake in a franchise, you're already buying a share of a team effectively at a discount because limited partners have no say in, in business decisions. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Monday, March 8th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. A venture led by Jerry Reinsdorf's sons is looking to buy a non-controlling share of the White Sox franchise, potentially adding a new layer to the team's already pretty complex ownership structure. So joining us now is Cranes reporter Danny Ecker with more about this. So Danny, perhaps let's start with that ownership structure, because I think there's a, a lot of layers there. Break that down for me, if you would. Right. So there are two different kinds of owners, effectively, in the White Sox. There is a general partner group and a limited partner group. So Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, who bought the team and led this group 40 years ago to buy the team, is the controlling shareholder of the general partner, which runs the franchise. Limited partners are investors that have no say in the business. They're just investors. And that group, the limited partner group, is what Michael and Jonathan Reinsdorf are apparently trying to get into. That's what we learned from this letter that Jerry sent uh to uh, other limited partners um, early last week saying there's an offer on the table. Uh, I know there's some groups that might be interested in cashing out. And so just wanted to offer this up and feel free to follow up with them if you're interested. And so that's, it's it. Like you said, I mean, that's an interesting new wrinkle here to see how that plays out. And what could that potentially mean if this, if this goes according to plan? Well, that's what makes it so interesting. I mean, this could be read in a couple different ways. At first glance, and I think the most likely intention here is that the Reinsdorfs see an opportunity to get in at, at a relative discount. And I say the Reinsdorf sons, of course, uh, because you've got COVID, uh, which has been pretty detrimental to team operating finances. And there's still, by the way, questions about the 2022 season even happening because uh, collective bargaining agreement between the, the league and the players uh, expires at the end of this year, and it's not really clear whether they're going to have a new deal for next year. So are there investors that want to sit through that or maybe look to cash out if they've been thinking about it now? And beyond that, you've got Michael and Jonathan Reinsdorf perhaps signaling a long-term intention to own the Sox, even though Jerry has said publicly that he has strongly suggested that his family sell the team when he dies. Not to be melancholy, but that's what he has said. He said that in 2013. He's kind of echoed that since. He said baseball's a very complicated business. 
Uh, now, on the other hand, when you buy a limited partner stake in a franchise, you're already buying a share of a team effectively at a discount because limited partners have no say in, in business decisions. And they can't sell their stake without the approval of the majority owner, Jerry in this case. So if you sell your limited partner share on your own, you're probably going to get 25 to 40% less than you would for shares if the entire team was sold. So, and this is what one of the sports business analysts suggested to me. If the Reinsdorfs buy shares at a discount and then Jerry sells the team in a year or 10 years, or if the family sells the team when he dies, they presumably stand to turn a profit on those limited partner shares. So that could be a motivating factor here to sell the team, that the team values have continued to go up and there might be investors looking to cash out now. Perhaps the younger Reinsdorfs maybe have no intention of keeping the team long-term, and this sets them up to make more money from a potential sale. So it, it can really cut different ways. I think this kind of uh, gives the family, the Reinsdorf family, potentially more options, more optionality in what they want to do with the team. And by the way, it's not really clear still when Jerry dies, who gets to determine whether the team is sold. There's all these different other investors, and some of them are in their 80s and 90s, and but if it is the Reinsdorf family that has that say, you know, one factor now could be that they also potentially will have a, a limited partner stake. So I want to back up to that. Do you have any indication of why he said he wanted his family to, to sell off his stake after his death? In 2013, he did an interview with the Tribune and also a sports business journal. And he just said baseball is a complicated business. There were a lot of comparisons at the time to, you know, OK, what do you want to do with the, the Sox versus the Bulls? Because remember, he also owns the Chicago Bulls. And he disclosed in this interview that, you know, his he, he encourages his family to sell the Sox, keep the Bulls. I, it's not really clear exactly why uh, that would be the case. And and also, you have no idea whether the Reinsdorf sons feel the same way. I mean, these this is a suggestion. And do they agree with him on that? I mean, we, we don't really know. But it's a very complex ownership structure. When the, when the Reinsdorf-led group bought the White Sox in 1981... For by the way, 19 million with an M dollars, and Forbes last year said they're worth 1.7 billion with a B. When they led that group, there were a bunch of different investors buying minority stakes at the time. So there are we don't know how many, but the Tribune said there are dozens of these limited partners. We know some of the names of groups that uh, of some of the the bigger and original investors that have um, some of the largest stakes. They're they're just Chicago business veterans um, in real estate and trading um, and other industries. So, so we don't really know what the circumstances will be when that occurs, but I think it's just going to be a little bit complex. And so maybe that has something to do with why he is encouraging his family to say, you know what, this is, this is, it'd be a smart to cash out. As all this is happening, I think an important detail here is that MLB changed its bylaws in 2019 to really rethink the investment structure. Explain a bit about that, if you would. They wanted to allow investment funds to buy minority stakes in multiple different teams. And that was meant to allow current owners to sell minority stakes and franchises as the values of these teams was just soaring. This is a trend that, as I mentioned, that crazy valuation now for the White Sox compared to what it was 40 years ago. That's just, you know, the, the New York Mets sold last year for $2.4 billion and it's all been driven by the, the fees that these media companies pay for broadcast rights for these teams. So these valuations have gotten so high that it's hard to find investors that can get in at such high levels. So in theory, the move kind of deepened the pool of buyers that want to buy into franchises. And so 
you know, potentially you may see, I, we don't know who else uh, is involved in this group that Michael and Jonathan Reinsdorf are leading. Um, so uh, there could be some interesting sources of, uh, of money behind them there. And, you know, there are more players in this space now. Theo Epstein, we just wrote about uh, him recently. He, he uh, resigned, obviously, as president of the Chicago Cubs last fall and then recently signed on as an advisor to a company called Arctos Sports Partners, which aims to buy minority shares of pro teams. This is exactly what they're targeting. So there are other funds that are really getting into this now. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, the, the you know, Jerry in this case or a majority owner, controlling owners of teams can veto sales of limited partner shares typically if they don't want to have a some particular owner involved in the team. But, you know, that this could be a, a way for him to get ahead and say, look, if you're looking to sell, there's all these groups out there, but um, there's also this one uh, that happens to be run by my son. So uh, that there could be, you know, other interested parties here uh, in, in buying limited partnership stakes in the White Sox or any other team. And that's kind of another interesting wrinkle to this. Other baseball news, though, that I want to ask you about before we part ways here, and that is uh, capacity for opening day. Some news around that. What can you tell me? Yeah, so long-awaited announcement today from the mayor's office that the Cubs and Sox will both be allowed 20% of their stadium capacity uh, on opening day. The mayor said that number could increase as the season goes on and some of the COVID metrics improve, but uh, that's about 8,200, almost 8,300 fans at Wrigley Field and about 8,100 fans at Guaranteed Rate Field uh, starting next month when uh, when games get going here. So, you know, badly needed victory for the teams because they really were coming off a, I mean, this is a 2020 season that was truncated by the crisis to just 60 games and they couldn't sell tickets. And, you know, that, that devastation financially was set up to continue, I think, in, in early this year with the 162-game schedule coming back, but not a lot of clarity about how many tickets the teams are going to be able to sell. So at least they can start now and, you know, start bringing in some of that key revenue source because baseball, you know, tickets uh, are, are such a huge part of the revenue pie for these teams. So uh, that's good news for the teams, and I'm sure welcome news for a lot of fans that are dying to get to an event, a sporting event, whatever the case may be, just to feel a little bit of normalcy again. Yeah, I know sports has had such a big role in, in all of this this year. I think for a lot of people, it was sports cancellations that really started to to put this in perspective for them this time last year when we started, especially when we started seeing the NBA canceling games. It was like, okay, this is big. To see that comeback for sports, to see, okay, this limited capacity can happen, 20% capacity for opening day, I think that um, will probably mean quite a bit to a lot of fans. Oh, absolutely. The way you said it is right. I mean, people will think about this differently when they think, oh, okay, we're we're really moving in the right direction. This is such a high profile move uh, now. And, you know, there is still, by the way, the you know, Bulls and Blackhawks are still playing in front of M empty United Center. And there is no indication yet from the city about if or when that's going to change in the weeks ahead. But, you know, certainly this is a step toward that. And we'll see whether that step comes before the end of the regular seasons for those teams, which... Um, which it may or may not happen, but uh, maybe even for, for playoff games that um, that maybe they could be uh, to, to that step. At that point, we just don't know, and the mayor really hasn't given any indication about that yet. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to break this down for us today. Thanks so much, Danny. Sure thing. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, United Way gets a $250,000 pledge as it kicks off the next phase of COVID relief. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Imagine if you had a Google Maps for your business, visualizing your path, guiding you to your destination while constantly optimizing your route to avoid accidents or traffic jams. Salonis's execution management system does exactly that. It pulls data from your existing systems, visualizes any business process, and automatically recommends or automates actions to take to achieve your business goals. Companies like Uber, Dell, Siemens, and L'Oreal are using Salonis to improve their processes and maximize their company's potential. Visit salonis.com get started to learn how your company can unlock its full potential. I'm Crane's reporter, A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Early Monday, the CDC issued its guidance for what fully vaccinated people can safely do as vaccine numbers rise, but as health experts warn that the risk of the virus remains, especially as new variants emerge. Generally, the agency recommends that fully vaccinated people can meet in indoor private settings with other fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask, but said that several restrictions remain, including advising against travel and recommending mask wearing in public. As for exactly what fully vaccinated means, two weeks after people receive their final shot of the two-dose Moderna or Pfizer vaccines or their one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're considered fully immunized and can meet indoors with other fully vaccinated people without wearing masks or social distancing, the CDC said, saying that such gatherings are, quote, low risk. Those vaccinated also can meet with people who aren't vaccinated from a single household who are at low risk without wearing masks or distancing, such as vaccinated grandparents meeting their unvaccinated kids or grandkids, providing they're healthy and not at high risk. However, the CDC also says that just 10 percent of the population has been fully vaccinated so far and recommends that those who are vaccinated continue to take steps to curb the spread of the virus, particularly as more contagious variants emerge. The CDC said that fully vaccinated people should wear masks and socially distance in public if they're visiting with unvaccinated people from more than one household or when around unvaccinated people who are high risk, such as older people. They also said that most fully vaccinated people don't need to quarantine and test for COVID-19 if exposed to a case and are asymptomatic, though there are some exceptions, such as residents of congregate settings like group homes. The agency also said that everyone, regardless of vaccination status, should avoid medium or large gatherings. But the CDC adds that if they choose to attend anyway, vaccinated people should wear a mask because they can still relay the virus to those who have not been inoculated. COVID-19 cases and deaths are declining across the country, and more than 9 million people have been fully vaccinated. In the past week, an average of 2.16 million doses per day were administered to Americans. The White House said that all American adults will be able to get a COVID-19 vaccine by the end of May. However, last week, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky warned of a fourth wave of COVID-19 infections without continued vigilance. President Joe Biden echoed her statement by urging everyone to keep watching their hands, practicing social distancing and wearing masks, saying now is not the time to let our guard down. Chicago is luring a health tech startup from Southern California, further bolstering the state's efforts to transform itself into a hub for life sciences. Solved Health, that's S-O-L-V-D, announced that it's moving its corporate HQ to Sterling Bay's Life Sciences Research Facility in Lincoln Park. 
The company, which is expanding as it prepares to commercialize two different preventative health products, plans to move into the Lincoln Yards development along the Chicago River in the future. That according to CEO Carrie Donaldson. Local biotech companies have moved to nearby Halstead Street with the goal of expanding to Lincoln Yards. But attracting an out-of-state firm like Solved brings Chicago even closer to becoming a global life sciences center, Sterling Bay CEO Andy Glor said in a statement. Attracting said life sciences companies to Illinois' also a big priority for Governor J.B. Pritzker, who last year announced $9 million in grants to incentivize the development and renovation of wet lab space. A lack of such high-quality lab space has hindered the local life sciences seen here, with university-based startups leaving for markets like Boston and San Francisco. Meanwhile, Solved is moving to Chicago as it prepares for rapid growth. The startup, previously known as Prescient Medicine Holdings, has two devices with breakthrough designations from the FDA. One aims to assess a patient's risk of opioid addiction before treatment is prescribed, and the other aims to prevent colon cancer by detecting precancerous polyps, as well as early-stage carcinomas. The company's CEO said Chicago, quote, has tons of well-known, renowned academic institutions, a fair amount of corporate global headquarters already, and a really good, young, rich talent pool with space available. Continuing, put all those things together, and that's one of the driving factors behind us picking Chicago for our headquarters. As the owner of Water Tower Place plans a comeback for the mall on the Mag Mile, several tenants have planned otherwise. At least 10 retailers, including Banana Republic and Riley Rose, have left Water Tower in recent months, but that's also been overshadowed by the recent decision of Macy's, the mall's biggest tenant, to close its department store there. Crane senior reporter Albie Galoon is covering the story in detail at chicagobusiness.com and has more. We've known that Macy's, Water Tower's largest tenant, is closing its store there. Now we know that the mall's second largest tenant, American Girl, plans to shrink its store, vacating almost all of its prime first floor space along Michigan Avenue. We also know that several other smaller tenants have left Water Tower since last summer. So what does it mean? The retail market was hurting before COVID, and now it's even worse. So these moves are just more signs of the market's troubles. But they also present an opportunity for Water Tower's owner, Brookfield Property Partners, to launch a major redevelopment, basically gut the first floor of the mall, chop it up into spaces for multiple retailers, and potentially bring in other uses like co-working and entertainment. But it's not going to be easy to fill a space because the outlook for retail real estate is still not great. United Way of Metro Chicago is kicking off the next phase of its COVID-19 relief fund with a quarter of a million dollar donor pledge, hoping to add to the $35 million it raised during the first eight months of the pandemic. United Way CEO Sean Garrett said the new campaign called March to Recovery is unlikely to match the amount already raised, but will signal the organization's continued commitment to pandemic-specific relief, saying, similar to last year, we remain in unchartered territory. The latest pledge comes from IMC, a trading firm with Chicago operations. It also contributed to the first phase, according to Garrett, which, according to United Way, started with 40-ish companies and foundations, each contributing at least 250000 So far, the funding for more than 6,000 donors has benefited or will soon benefit more than 400 organizations in both Cook and DuPage counties. Initially, the COVID relief effort was jointly administered by the United Way and the Chicago Community Trust and Target targeted safety net organizations like the Greater Chicago Food Depository and others providing financial assistance related to job losses.
And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's reporter, Danny Ecker. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And be sure to find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.